0: Good morning, Mercy Hill Church. How are we doing this morning? Thanks so much, worship team, for leading in service. Thanks so much, Benoit family. That was amazing. So many Benoits at Mercy Hill Church. It's amazing. Well, my name is Dylan, and I'm on staff with Mercy Hill, if you haven't met me before. I'm actually, my focus is Salt Company. So that's, come on, come on, somebody. That is our college ministry. a little bit more energy, maybe, than some of us this morning, because... UC is officially done with this semester. Let's go. Thank y'all for coming. Thank y'all for waking up, you know, before noon. Y'all probably deserve that. Um, And then Xavier, come on, one more week. One more week. And y'all got a big boost from yesterday, right, too, to kind of take it home. I'm not going to say which side I was rooting for, okay? I'm just neutral party that whole way through. Um, But there's a lot of things to be excited for at Mercy Hill Church because it is Christmas season like Seth and Hazel were talking about, we have our very first Christmas service in just a couple weeks, and I am so excited about that. That is going to be a milestone moment for our church, and I would love for y'all to come, bring your families, and just hand out one of those cards and invite somebody, family, friend, co-worker, anybody. Just invite them to come and enjoy the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ together. So speaking of Christmas time, I want to take y'all way back to 1997, to Dylan's first Christmas, okay? It was an awesome time to be alive because that was the first year of my life. So it was a great time. I was at my granddaddy's house playing with all my bigger cousins. Everybody wanted to play with baby Dylan, obviously, right? I was adorable. Um, I don't have any photos to prove it, so you're just gonna to take my word for it, okay? And I was having a great time, you know, being what a little one-year-old-ish does, just stumbling around, goo goo gaga all that stuff, until I tripped and smoked my face on a nice, solid metal chair leg, okay? This was like the old, like, 1970s metal chairs. I don't know if y'all know what I'm talking about, but they're like 60 pounds when you pick them up. Not like our beautiful fold-out chairs that y'all are sitting in right now. <laughs> state-of-the-art stuff. But I smoked my face on this chair, and, you know, babies... They don't have that many teeth anyway, but now I had one tooth less, okay? So I pop up. Obviously, I'm, it's like the, the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And my cousin, who is a dentist, he actually tried to fit my tooth back in, which, yeah, like, thanks a lot, dentist. So my mom wouldn't notice, but clearly that didn't work. And uh, you only get two set of teeth in this life, okay? I don't know if you know that. And so, you know, my, my other front tooth didn't come in until I was, like, seven years old, seven or eight. And so I was, like, that kid that, like, had the, you know, I could, like, fit the straw in there, and I could, like, shoot water out. I was, like, the cool kid. Um, but thankfully for uh, family genetics, it gets, it gets even better because I think that there's some crocodile in my family because my teeth were just completely jacked up. And so there I was. Dylan with a hole in his face, little crocodile boy running around for (laughs) probably about the first nine years of my life. And I was just like, this is it. I'm going to be part crocodile until I learned about these wonderful objects called braces. Whoa. I know some of y'all were like, why are you so excited? But I was stoked, okay? I could, like, trick out my teeth. I could put different colors in there, and then my teeth are going to be so straight, I wanted a piece of that, okay? So my sister went to the orthodontist. I wanted to tag along. I was going to get my braces, and the doctor assured me that once I was old enough, I'd be able to have braces. So the wait began, and the day finally came. I was in middle school for me to have braces. I was so excited. The orthodontist made true on his word. He slapped those puppies on my teeth. I was so excited. It was October, so I got, like, black and orange, you know? I was like, this is, like... Awesome! Like I am going to be the coolest kid in school. It's really interesting, like what you value when you're in middle school. But I was so excited until the doctor said, "Your teeth are going to look great in about two and a half years," and I was like, "Wait, so this isn't like a, this is like a weekend thing? Like, get my braces, get them off?" And that was when I realized how frustrating braces were, okay? I played football in middle school. That was the worst thing. I had a mouth guard, and it, like, never fit the mouth guard, and I was getting knocked around a lot in those days, and so it always cut, like, the side of my cheek. Constant pain, my jaws realigning, right? Like, this is so frustrating, and look, I had absolutely no desire To keep these braces on. It's like December. I still have Halloween colors on my face. I'm like, this is the worst thing ever. I wanted to take these braces off. They were painful and annoying, but the only thing that I could do in that moment was trust that my teeth would be fixed in the end, okay? Even if it felt like an eternity away in my middle school mind. And strangely enough, I think this is how a lot of us think about Christianity, about our walk with the Lord, because we... We have trusted Christ to save us from our sin. We've trusted him to be our redeemer and save us from the penalty of death, but we're not trusting him in our day-to-day lives. We're not trusting that he is actually straightening us out, sharpening us, growing us, realigning us to look less like our old self and more like our new self. Okay. There's a reason that it's called walking with God, right? It's not a sprint to the finish line. It is a daily step-by-step walk, so that it talks about in James 1 verse 4, so that we, in the end, he may make us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so, Mercy Hill, I think that Ruth chapter 3, the text that we're going to get in, is exactly what we need to hear this morning. Because in, in this story, we're going to see how Ruth and Naomi are trusting in God in some of the most uncertain and painful season in their entire life. And they're actually going so far out on a limb that they're putting all their chips and trusting in God in these uncertain seasons. And we're gonna see this plan that they hatch and how it is divinely inspired by God, but that the key of it is that they are fully trusting in him. And I pray that God will be able to use this passage to give us a humble dependence on God by trusting that he is willing and able to redeem us regardless of how much it hurts, regardless of the uncertainty, regardless of the situation that we're in. So if you would, Let's pray, and we'll get into it. Dear Lord, uh, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the Christmas season um, and the the little book of Ruth in the Old Testament and how um, thousands of years ago it points directly to you, Jesus. Um, God, I pray that we'd be focused on your word, God, and, and just give me the words to speak. Let the text do the talking, God, and let your gospel be clear. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so... Ruth chapter 3, it's a little book in the Old Testament. We've been going through the whole book of Ruth, and we're going to give some more context. Let's just go ahead and dive into verse 1. So, Ruth 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Okay, this is an interesting plan, right? A risky plan. And you may be asking yourself, if you've been coming the past couple of weeks, okay, Ruth, Naomi, why would you take on all this risk? Last week, we learned that Ruth and Naomi are actually being provided much more food than they'd ever really need from this generous farmer, Boaz, okay? An incredible character. We're gonna learn more about him soon. But the question is right now, why are they not satisfied with what they already have? But what we know is that Ruth and Naomi, they aren't the women that take the path of least resistance, right? They are trusting in God that he is going to show up and show out in their life. And Naomi sees this as a very pivotal moment in the direction of her family. So they can stay where they're at. They can be stuck um, in this position of these generous handouts, um, but they can take action. And Naomi is saying, hey, I know we have food, but I want us to have a future. She's beginning to see a future where there wasn't one before, okay? Okay. It's so a little bit of background on them. Their family is either dead or gone. Both their husbands have been killed. They're dead. They're both widows. And Ruth has moved into a foreign land and has clung on to her mother-in-law, Naomi, as they moved back to Israel. They have nothing to their name. The only thing they can do is trust in God that he is going to go, uh, pull through with his word, um, and so, let's keep going in. Verse 1, let's learn more about the context. She says, Naomi, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? So she's not talking about sleep or physical rest, okay? It's not like, hey, we need to find you a good place to take a nap or anything. She's talking about a future, and the way that the future in this context could come about is by a, a woman having a husband and continuing on a family line. That was the context 3,000 years ago, okay? Okay. This was how it's done. So, as we look in verse 2, Naomi saying out loud to Ruth, this is an opportunity right here when she says, is not Boaz our relative? So, remember, chapter 2, Boaz is related to Naomi's husband, Naomi's dead husband, okay? And she calls Boaz one of their redeemers. This is a pivotal word in this story. And this idea of a family redeemer, it originated from the Mosaic law in Leviticus. So some of y'all shuddered at that because I know that that book was the one that really stumped y'all and y'all like read a Bible in a year plan, right? Leviticus, okay, it's an incredible book where God has given perfect laws to his chosen people Israel, and if they follow these laws, they will be pure and perfect, and then the world around them can see the glory of God. That's what the plan of Leviticus was. So more goes into it in Leviticus chapter 25 for what a family or a kinsman redeemer is, but to summarize, the family redeemer had three main roles depending on the circumstances, okay? So number one, the family redeemer would redeem a family member from slavery. So if for some reason you got yourself into slavery or, or you know, put yourself in slavery, the family redeemer had a call to go and like, pay your bail, to buy you back, and to bring you into the family. Okay? So that was rule number one. That was something that the kinsman redeemer did. Number two, the redeemer could restore their inheritance and continue on the family line of the deceased. So that's what's happening in this case. Ruth's husband is dead. Naomi's husband is dead. There is no one to carry on the family line of Naomi. And so that's what uh, Naomi is thinking. She's going, Boaz can be the redeemer. You can get married to him, but it wouldn't be Boaz's necessarily It would be his biological son or daughter, but it would technically be through the line of Naomi. Are we tracking with that? So it was a very very giving way to provide and to continue on that family line, the genealogy, which is so important at this time. So redeems a member of the family of slavery, restores their inheritance, and number three would avenge the murder of a family member. So if you were wrongly killed or murdered, It was the task of the family redeemer to avenge the murder and restore peace back into a family that was in turmoil. And I just want to go ahead and just park the bus right here for a second and say, okay, all of these things that are happening sounds a lot like a man in the New Testament, right? Jesus Christ, he is our redeemer. Just as Boaz, as they're hoping that Boaz would be their family redeemer, Jesus has done all of these things to free us from sin and death. Because, look right here, he says that because of his death, burial, and resurrection, he has set us free from the slavery of sin, right? He has given us an inheritance where we didn't have one before, and our greatest enemy, sin, which causes death, he has crushed it by his perfect sacrifice, that's it. So we're starting to see in the story of Ruth that, hey, there is some ties going on, that Boaz is actually an example, a reflection of what Jesus will be. Just as Ruth and Naomi are hoping that he will be their redeemer, Jesus is the redeemer of the entire world if you trust in his name. We're going to learn more about that in chapter, chapter four. It's kind of frustrating because like I want to read the end, but we're in chapter three, so we got to stick there. There's some good stuff going on, too. Um, so back to the plan. Okay, verse three. She says, "Isn't he winnowing barley at the threshing floor?" So remember, Boaz is a farmer, and it's barley season, and he has been busting it for about three and a half months because that's about how long the barley season is at this time. And he's cultivating barley, and it's now it's time to separate the chaff from the grain. So the grain is the good stuff. You sell it, you make food out of it. The chaff is like the dead leafy stuff. And so she says, Isn't he winnowing barley at the threshing floor? The threshing floor was at typically like the highest part of their little town or area because that's where the wind would be blowing. And a winnowing fork, they would get the chaff, uh, excuse me, get the barley and they would shovel it up into the air. This was their technique. They would shovel it up into the air and the wind would blow all the chaff away and the grain would fall to the ground. And they would just do that over and over and over again. So, like, aren't we thankful for modern agriculture, right? I just, like, drove by the store and bought a loaf of bread for, like, two bucks, right? Like, and these guys are just shoveling it. Like, I have a lot of, I'm very grateful for modern technology, right? Um, So they're going to be exhausted doing this, and Naomi says, hey, we're going to get you cleaned up, and at nighttime, you're going to go over, and you're going to go see him. And I think it's easy to think that, okay, trying to get you, like, Uh, what is it, like princess diaries, kind of like spin the chair, like we're going to get you looking beautiful, you know, and that's, that's actually not what's happening right here, because again, Ruth was a widow, and so in this culture, she was wearing the attire that would be respective of a widow, so they would wear specific clothes to where their culture would be able to clearly see, hey, okay, this is a widow. Let's give her some space. She is in mourning. So that's what Naomi is saying. Hey, we need to we pretty much need to let you let the people know that hey, you are available again. We need to make sure that Boaz knows that you're no longer. Wearing the widow's clothes, you are available, and uh, it's this coat as well that they're talking about. It's not like a, you know, it's not like a fancy coat or anything. I think of Israel as like a burning desert, and like you know, Arizona or something. But this is kind of winterish time, like getting out of winter. So nighttime is like 40 or 50 degrees. So don't try to like overcomplicate things. The coat, she's just, hey, you need to stay warm, right? So that's kind of what the purpose is. Um, so Naomi says, hey, wait till Boaz. Eats and drinks his fill. It's not saying, like, hey, wait till he gets drunk, okay? And I think that most of us have probably, like, expected, like, I've like, had an example of one of these days. Maybe it's a student you've been studying all night, or you've just had a full week of work, and, like, you just want to, like, go home, like, grab a beer, grab a burger, just plop on the couch, like, chill. Like, you've, you've worked hard. Now you're going to, like, rest on the fruits of your labor, right? I used to um, do construction, and we would pour concrete super early in the morning because in South Louisiana, if you, had, if you poured in the afternoon, it would, like, harden immediately. So I'd get up at 2 in the morning, and we'd start pouring concrete. I'd get done around, like, 12, 30 or 1. I would drive home. Just grab a six-pack, grab a burger, and just flop on the couch and take a nap. Like, this is what's happening with Boaz. He's like, I am exhausted, okay? I just need to rest. He's not getting drunk. And on top of that, it's like, why wouldn't she sleep in your bed? Well, this is the time of the judges, right? We talked about that in um, chapter 1, a.k.a. like the wild west of Israel, okay? Like this is a bad time to be alive if you are an Israelite, okay? It says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So what a perfect time for a posse of bad guys to come and plunder your stuff if right during the harvest season, Right? So Boaz is literally going to lay on top of the grain. He's going. I am going to protect this with my life, and he's gonna, you know, fall asleep as he's exhausted. Um, so they're gonna have to get through him first. Naomi then tells Ruth to uncover his feet and lay down and wait for him to respond. Now, I am like completely tucked in when I go to sleep. Like I tuck in the sides. When I was single, I would put pillows around me. I don't know why, I just felt secure. And I even did the thing where I'd lift up my leg and like tuck the sheets under. Does anybody else do that? All right, hey, don't knock it till you try it. It's amazing, okay? And I grew up next to railroad tracks and so like my bunk bed would shake when the trains would go by, I loved it. So I also snore. So the whole thing is like, There is not much that can wake me up. But if you pull the sheets out from my feet, they turn into popsicles in like 10 seconds. And so that's a great way to wake me up, okay? So just roll the sheets out. My feet are going to go freezing. It's in the wintertime, right? So that's what's happening here. Just a way to wake up Boaz in a very gentle way. And she's creating an opportunity for him to do something. They're just going to figure out kind of what happens um, right here. Um, They want to do it in privacy um, as well. And uh, this is a big gamble. As you hear this story, a lot of things could go wrong, right? Crazy things happen in the middle of the night. And the number one thing that could happen was that she could be seen as a prostitute, okay? She wouldn't be the only woman that's walking around at night visiting men in their sleep, right? Like, The last thing that she wants to do is be seen as a prostitute or be perceived as a prostitute by Boaz because that would just absolutely ruin her reputation. And then, you know, Boaz, we we know so far that he's a good guy, but he could have easily taken advantage of her in this situation too, right? So there's a lot of trust that has to go on here. And a good question you're probably thinking is, okay, This is this crazy Bible story. How does this relate to my life at all? And I want you all to know that it would take a lot of faith in the unseen hand of God to trust that Boaz would discern this strange situation and that God could use it for good, okay? And I think that's one thing that we don't do very well. We do not trust God in the uncertain and confusing or difficult times in our life, even in just the daily grind of our life. And I think that's why we worry so much about our future. I think that's why we stay up late working or don't come home to our families because we just feel like we just have to land that deal or get that partnership or get the next promotion so that we can provide and we can be the ones that are doing it and and, and we can get self-esteem back and whatever it is. And we're just holding so tightly to the unknown because we don't know what the future holds. I think for students, I think that's why we're, we're, we're cramming in tests, we're trying to get the good grades because we're trying to get the degree or the master's or the medical residency or whatever it is. And listen, these things are good, right? But we're holding so tightly to them, and we're placing them as an altar that that degree or that residency or that promotion is going to solve all my problems, or maybe it's a relationship that you're in, right? And she's so great, or he's so great, and you like don't want to screw it up, and so you're just like, and you're just like clenching so tightly to this thing that's going to make everything better. And that's not trusting in God. Because I hate to break it to you all, but relationships, even good ones, they go away. Jobs, companies, they aren't going to last forever. Our stock options, they're not gonna stay going up, right? Things are going to fail us in the end, but the only thing that will never fail us is Jesus Christ, amen? And that's what we can trust in. And so I'm challenging us as a church to have, just start to take baby steps towards the trust that Naomi and Ruth are having in this situation. They have put all of their chips out there, and they're like, hey, if this bombs, we're gonna fall flat on our face and you may be asking yourself this question, Like, well, Dylan, that's all good, but what if I fail? What if I, what if I mess up? What if the thing that I really want doesn't come to fruition? Is God still good? Um, and I want to tell you that he is. When I was out of school, right, working construction, we already ran through that, I was applying to jobs like crazy. Like I applied to like over 150 jobs, got a bunch of interviews. In between my lunch breaks, I would have a suit in the back of my truck, and I would drive over there and like be like knocking off dust and stuff, straightening my hair, getting getting into the interviews. And then I even like would have Zoom interviews, and so I would just put like half of my suit on and sit in my car and be like, "How are you?" Um, you know, like really. Tr- my my coworkers are always got a kick out of that. Um, I was trying so hard to live. The life that I want to live, the life that I thought would bring me prosperity or a future or a hope, but you want to know how many jobs that I got offered from that? I literally got zero. It was like one of the most demoralizing times of my life. I remember taking long walks by myself at night just aimlessly like, God what do you what do you have for me? I have no idea what I need to do next. What do you have for me? It was difficult and I want to tell you that if I would have gotten one of those jobs, I would not be in Cincinnati, almost guaranteed. I would not be married to Maya, guaranteed. I I wouldn't be able to see how God has been able to use this church in absolutely incredible ways and be able to use me in ways that I never thought possible. So, I'm not the poster child for trust at all. What I'm saying is, we don't know what tomorrow holds. And are you seeking clarity? Are you trying to know exactly what's going to happen? Or are we seeking trust in God that he is going to pull through? Again, I wasn't seeking for that to happen in my life, but I'm very grateful um, that it did. And I consider myself blessed because that was only about three years ago. And some of y'all may have been waiting or have been waiting on God to show up for a long time. And I want you to know that looking at the story of Ruth and Naomi, who have gone through the absolute ringer, that you can trust that God will show up in his due timing. We see to continue to trust in him. So let's keep reading and let's see how God starts to show up, okay? So verse six. So she went down to the threshing floor And did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. She came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled, obviously, and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet, and he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Verse 9 is the crux of this passage. I just want to stop right there. Um, She says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And I just want to stop and go, do you see how this plan is unfolding? She is coming to him in the middle of the night, uncovering his feet in privacy, discreetness, if that's a word, not wanting to. To make him have any societal pressure to what she is about to request and ask, right? She is trying to protect his integrity by not going to him in public and asking it with everybody else lying around, right? She wanted to come to him privately so he can actually think through the process of okay, this woman is asking. Really, she is proposing that we would get married. It's pretty amazing. And I know she doesn't technically ask a question, but have you ever been like asked, like, give, like, given a statement that's really a question, right? That's what she's doing right here. She's asking in this statement, are you able and are you willing? She's really saying, hey, if you really are who I think you are, if you really are a redeemer, redeem me. Can you save me? Can you fix my problems? And I know that when you read, Spread your wings over your servant. You may think it's like a weird like, sexual innuendo. Okay? I just want to like, clear all of that out. Maybe your uh, version also says, like, uh, put your garment over me or put your garment over your maidservant or something like that. That is really like a proposal for marriage. So she's asking Boaz to pretty much cover her and protect her and provide for her and to give her a hope and a future where there wasn't one before. And I think that we ask ourselves that question of God all the time. Are you able and are you willing? And I want you to know, church, that we serve a God that is lacking in absolutely nothing. Okay, I have a couple of verses to go through this. We could go through hours and hours of how God is able and willing, but in Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen, it says, ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. In Matthew 19, 26, Jesus straight up says, he says, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, All things are possible. All throughout Scripture, we see the power and might working on behalf of those that love him and working in ways that they would have never thought imaginable. So your problems are not too big for him to handle, and also your problems are not too small for him to overlook. Because when we're asking if God is willing to step into our mess, step into our our issues, we're really asking, what does your character say? Do you actually have the will to do it? Do you actually want to come in? Titus 2.11 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That means that God's grace through Jesus Christ, he has appeared to all people willingly. He stepped in to the gap and died the death that we deserved. I love this. This is in Ezekiel 33.11. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. God is willing and able to redeem every situation. And like I said, we can go hours and hours through this, but the ultimate one, the ultimate way that he is able and willing is through Jesus Christ. John 3.16, right? Popular verse easy to forget about the importance of it, but it says, for God so loved the world, he was willing, that's his character, he loved the world so much that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. I know all of us have heard that verse over and over again, but that is a beautiful picture of how God loves, is able, and is willing to redeem those. Boaz's response is equally amazing, right, going back to the text, because he himself knew that he was a redeemer for her already, but instead of just stepping in and like exerting his will upon her and being like, hey, you're going to be my wife now, right, like in some other time, he actually was waiting for her to remove her like widow garments, right, and to come and approach him, which I think is amazing. He says in verse 10, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I remain tonight and in the morning if he will redeem you good let him do it but if he is not willing to redeem you then as the lord lives i will redeem you lie down until the morning there's so much good stuff here that shows the character of boaz because he's going first off thank you for proposing to me in the dead of night <laughs> right because he wasn't going to do it she was wearing the widow's attire she was she was not available right but he is shocked by her boldness and her, her strength and her courage and trust. Um, this, this phrase, worthy woman, it's, it's called hahail in ancient Hebrew. I know I'm not a, you know, I don't speak ancient Hebrew, it's the only word I know. And, uh, but hahail, and that means worthy and uh, full of valor. And this is the time of the judges, and the judges, with their might, in strength and military prowess, they were called hahail, like Samson, like super strong dude. He was called hahail, worthy man of valor. And so Boaz is giving her so much praise right here when he said, Hey, you may not be like Samson, right? But you are just as worthy of the honor and praise that these judges are getting because of your faithfulness and your boldness. And he's saying, Hey, I'm in for this. I'm so down for this, but there's someone else closer in line than me. And so I'm going to go talk to this man and pretty much make sure that that we can get this done, okay? So Ruth got there late and left early. And seems strange like why they would like It's kind of like something like, hey, why would you care what other people think, you know? Like, aren't you supposed to be, like, you're not supposed to worry about anybody but God. But hey, listen, like, they're trying to protect the reputation of each other. Like, how weird would it be if they both walked out on the threshing floor and people were like, well, what were y'all doing? And Boaz is like, hey all good. She just slept by my uncovered feet. Like, nothing happened. Like, that would not go along well, right? Like, everybody would be like, yeah, right, dude. So, they're just trying to protect each other's reputation, and that's why she left early, because they're actually men and women of honor, and they want to care and protect for one another. But before she goes, Boaz, his character, floats to the top again, and he absolutely loads her down, I did the six measures of barley. They're not exactly sure how much it is, but they're thinking it's about 60 to 70 pounds worth of barley. He's just like, take it, take it, like boom, boom. And I know that she may not be the strength of Samson, but like, geez, like Ruth was pretty strong. Like she's gonna like Santa Claus lug this thing back. Like she must have been pretty strong, right? Like physically. Um, Yeah, and so, but it's not just a, a, a way of kindness, but it's almost like a down payment, right? He's putting his money where his mouth is, literally. He's like, hey, I'm gonna go talk to this man. Take this, take care of your mother-in-law. I'm coming back for you. I'm going to redeem this situation. Amazing. Let's keep reading, verse 16. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. What a guy, right? Oh, man, what a guy. Yeah, that's, that's just so cool. Uh, I, I love, like, she's the, he's thinking of Naomi. He's trying to get on her, her good side too now. Like, it's so great. Um, anyways, verse 18, she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. My last point here, church, that I want us to know is that God is not only able and willing to intervene on our behalf and our problems and uncertainties, but he actually doesn't procrastinate. He's not waiting around, okay? Okay. He's not being lazy. Like, students, how glad are y'all that God isn't the God that turns in their Friday paper at 11.59 p.m., right? Like, I was there. I've done that so many times in my college days. Like, aren't you so glad that God isn't the God, like your uncle or cousin or brother, that, like, shows up to the Christmas party, like, an hour and a half late and brings, like, a stale bag of Tostitos, like, right? Like, we all have one of those, right? I hope I'm not the only one. Jeez. Uh... God doesn't procrastinate, okay? Contrary to popular ideas, he is never late. And so often, we associate God with kind of like a vending machine of blessings. I feel like we live in a microwavable society where we say a prayer, we like punch in the couple buttons, hit express, and we're hoping that God will come back um, in two minutes or less, right, to redeem our problems. But, y'all... these bodies are, are going to go away, but our souls are going to last forever, and God knows that, and so what he's doing is, hey, I may not be giving you the solution to your immediate problem, but I'm going to give you something else to where in this life, which is this short, I'm equipping you for the life that is forever. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that we serve. Um, And Ruth and Naomi are stoked about this. They are so excited because they know the heart and conviction of Boaz. They know what kind of worthy man he is, and they're ready. They are fully confident that he is going to come through for them and provide them with a hope and a future. And church, we need to have the same faith in our God in seasons of uncertainty. God is both willing and able to help us in our time of need. And when things go sideways or out of control, know that God is working on your behalf in ways that you would never imagine. Until that time comes, just like Ruth and Naomi, we can experience true rest on uncertainty because we know that God will complete what he has started. Philippians 1 6 says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And, church, I want us to cling to that truth. Be encouraged that we serve a God that will finish what he started. And that we can also look back on stories like this and in our own lives. And I ask you to have conversations in your connection group and talk and learn about how God is working in seasons of uncertainty. So that we could be perfect and complete, lacking on nothing in the day of Christ, but ultimately knowing that he already is perfect and complete, and his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross is all we need. Let's pray. Dear God, I feel like I could just go on and on on this. It's, uh, it's so cool to see thousands and thousands of years ago how you're providing uh, for your people in ways that they would have never imagined, God. And in the same way, you're providing for us now um, in ways that we could never know or imagine. But ultimately, that we can cling to one firm foundation, and that's that your son Jesus bled and died on the cross for us, and he did not stay in that tomb, but three days later, he rose again. And we can hold on to that as our firm foundation. So God, I pray that in the uncertainties of life, and there will be many, when things go sideways, when things we don't understand comes up, let's cling to the one thing that can really save us, and that is our son, that is your son, Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord, we thank you, and we pray, amen.